0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Verterel and Pierre Delancelle. NFT, DAO, ETH, WAGMI, HODL. It would have been hard to avoid these acronyms only a year ago. The hype around cryptocurrencies and blockchain art was almost as annoying as the glee with which crypto-skeptics welcomed the sudden onset of the crypto winter. But for all the popularity of board Apes and Ponzi scheme stories, there seems to have been little serious engagement with the philosophical, political and aesthetic implications of the blockchain. The Academy appears to have dismissed the crypto world out of hand, citing its financial unviability and the deeply problematic philosophical foundations of its technology. That's a research gap if there ever was one, and one which the new book, Proof of Work, Blockchain Provocations, by Ria Myers addresses. Myers is a crypto artist, writer and hacker who searches for faces in cryptographic hashes, follows a day in the life of a young sheep in the year 2032, and patiently explains why all art should be destructively uploaded to the blockchain. Myers focused on the blockchain technology in 2011, becoming one of the first artists to enter into creative, speculative and conceptual engagement with the new internet. As ever, you'll find links to the works we discuss in the show notes. Welcome to the show, Ria.
1: Thank you, it's good to be here.
2: There's
0: a lot going on in the book, Ria. Um, It has artworks, it has art criticism, a bit of art history, some reflections on technical aspects of the blockchain, some proposals for what art could do in the space. A fair bit of Marxist critique, a bit of fiction in the form of a a short story, a bit of Python code examples, and it also has the line, avocado, bread, park, trend, replace, position. So that's a triumph. Another triumph, I think, is that the book doesn't go on about NFTs all that much.
1: It doesn't, no. (laughs)
0: Well, because we have so much to choose from, I actually want us to start with something that's formally outside of the purview of the volume, which is one of your earliest works. This is a piece called Postscript Virus from, I believe, 1993, which on the page appeared a bit like a fractal drawing. And I think this is interesting because it seems to already bring quite a lot of the ideas that I think permeate throughout your book. That is the idea of a language, that is the idea of a virus, manipulation and reproduction.
2: Yes,
1: I mean, PostScript at the time was the way that print media was prepared. You would create everything on your little Macintosh, um, for print it out, well, not print it out, save it as PostScript, and then send it off to an enormous printing press, which would render the PostScript programming code as actual areas of of color or its absence, and you would then squeeze the results out between enormous spinning metal plates covered in coloured goo. And I was interested at that time in choke points for intervention, and finding a place to effectively intervene in the circulation of aesthetics and the way that that impacted um, how people see the world and sort of what I would now say, you know, reflects their, their ideology. So finding this this programming language that was used to make all the magazines and all the books and all the posters that anyone saw, and fi- finding that it was a programming language, which of course is a medium that you can, can manipulate, absolutely blew my brain. So I, I sort of, from my childhood knowledge of basic, um, the programming language that kids used to learn to program
2: mm-hmm.
1: in, in the 1980s, I sort of, had to quickly learn how PostScript worked because it was a strange language, even for the time. And that the, the point of the work isn't the the little fractal tree, which I think as an example I got from somewhere or converted from somewhere. It's the fact that there's this body of code that can be sent to the printer or the printing press, and it will lurk there, and it will randomise to a degree anything you send to it to have it print out a bit wibbly wobbly a bit more chaotic a bit more rave Mm. yeah it's the the actual work as it were is the code that randomizes the code that follows and that in virus terms is is the payload um, it's the head of the virus the replicator part the part of the virus that would propagate it and copy it to other machines. I I did write that as a proof of concept, but I decided I -hmm. I didn't want to go to prison if it worked. So I didn't actually try (laughs) putting them together and it didn't get any further than the postscript printer in the architectural department at Canterbury College of Art.
0: <laughs> and no one has tried it since. I'm slightly surprised by that. Since postscript still seems to run half of the world's printers, Yes, yeah. looking at your practice, I think this is a very important and formative example of what you've been doing, because it brings together a whole bunch of elements that I think are very usefully explored through the prism of computational arts, which is also a term and a typology that I would like you to explain in a moment. So you have language, you have reprogramming of language, and if I'm not wrong, PostScript is actually a language that is kind of human, readable. Yes. You've got language, you've got repurposing of language, you have the relationship between language and some kind of visual output, which is where the loaded term aesthetics comes in why do we need a computer for all of this? So I'm interested in, in your perspective on, on how these things come together and your perspective in particular as someone who has come to the art world or come to the practice of art through the projector of computational arts.
1: <laughs> I can't claim any great historical insights in, in choosing to use computers. It's not like I was Harold Cohen, who was an internationally renowned colorist painter who went to the U.S., saw a computer and said, right, I'm changing what I'm doing. I grew up when information technology was a a hot topic, and as as a child, I was using various different little Mm -hmm. 8-bit British home computers to, to draw colored squares on the screen and not realise what I was missing out on in the much wider world of computer art. So, you know, it it wasn't like I sat down, mastered the arts, looked around for relevant technology and said, goodness, this new computing machinery seems like it it might be a way of of Mm -hmm. upsetting people's assumptions. I must learn about this. It was was basically a given. Um, And the thing that really made it a given was the prevalence of vector graphic art mm-hmm. so the kind of art that you draw by stretching a line across the page and turning it to a curve rather than the kind of mark that you make pixel by pixel sitting mm-hmm. in blue or green or using a simulated airbrush uh, the prevalence of that kind of graphics in record covers and posters and popular cultural imagery Around the start of the 90s. So there was that, there was the emergence of computer graphics. I'd seen Luxo Junior. And again, coming back to the fact that this was around when I was a kid, there's a, a children's publisher called Osborne, who I used to get books mm-hmm. through the local school uh, book club in England. And one of their computer books had Explore Kent Ken. Norton and others graphics programming language as an example of things that computers can do, and had a very fanciful full-page illustration of Harold, Cohen, and Aaron drawing away in the Tate and saying, hey, look that you can make art with computers. <laughs> so I from that point of view, I didn't have to think, hey, you could use these things to make art. It's like I knew that it was possible, but I also knew that if you said this to people in the proper, serious, respectable art. Well, they'd look at you either like you had lost your mind, or like you were some sort of um, evil entryist from from the the land of accounting or something.
2: And <laughs>
1: that made it interesting, you know that that ability to take something that was there both in popular culture and in uh, an ongoing alternative world of art and start applying mm-hmm. it to the questions and problems that i was exposed to at art school just that that really added up. and i mean i started making art with screen prints and dye photo transfers and paint and mm-hmm. all sorts of things i had a brief flirtation with with physical media before <laughs> going all in on on digital you know i grew up with it it was a continuation of it into the life world that i found myself
0: in that's interesting so you've you've either provided us with an argument for closing libraries or keeping them open depending (laughs) on how this story ends by the end of a conversation
2: Uh,
1: for for libraries i had a wonderful experience when i was at um kingston polytechnic now kingston university on my Mm. foundation course and we were given the task to interpret one painting in another artist's style. And I was given a Futurist Cyclist and a Jackson Pollock Spatter painting. And I just couldn't, mm-hmm. from the tiny reproduction of the Futurist Cyclist I'd been given, work out pretty much where the Cyclist was. But fortunately, the library had a book which was a collection of sketches by Boccioni or Marinetti or whoever. And it had the precise. The sketches for this painting where it starts out with a very naturalistic charcoal or pencil sketch of a of a cyclist circa nineteen oh whatever, uh, adds some force lines to it, breaks it down into triangles and then goes to town. Mm-hmm. And that early experience of access to knowledge and openness of knowledge as an enabling condition for the practice of art really left an impression on me. And the other thing that came from that was uh, when I encountered the art and language group's work when I went to do my degree and saw that they'd done a, a portrait of Lenin in the style of Jackson Pollock. I, I very quickly recognised something there that I had engaged with in, in a sort of foundation student way previously. And that was my, my, my other obsession other than technology mm. going forward.
0: Well, I'll certainly try to find a link for listeners to the image of Uncle Lenin. It's interesting. You've already driven us into the arena of art history. Now, let's dwell a little bit on art and language, because as I already highlighted, language seems to seep through everything that you've done in your practice, in writing, and in its in visual aspects. The relationship to the conditions of conceptual art that the group Art and Language, who were active mostly in the 70s in London and in New York, and have made a whole range of really seminal work that ended up defining, in a trajectory very different to the kind of usually known that of, you know, Daniel Buren and Hans Hackett. Like they created a very different reading of conceptual
1: art. Yes, it provided a way of taking a, a theoretical and technical practice into the materials of art in a way that didn't make either of them secondary. So to take the example of a painting of Lenin in the style of Jackson Pollock that was originally proposed conversationally or in, in an article as an impossible picture. How, how could you reconcile the, the then current post-war history of abstract expressionism and socialist realism? They came from incompatible universes and then of so the technical challenge that came from that of actually making that and the results of, of making it and learning from it this sort of feedback loop of the theoretical and the practical that doesn't reduce to a an ideologically directed praxis there's still some uncertainty and risk to the doing of the thinking and the thinking of the doing and then the doing of the making and the making of the doing so from them, from Charles Harrison, who was associated with the group, I got a very strong understanding and desire for a historical materialist art history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea that the, that the art doesn't stop at the edge of the frame; that the, you know there are social and historical effects on and in art, and that um, technique. The, the, the making of the art, the materials used in the art, is, is, a, is a wider question than um, was being recognised, I feel, at the time. This may simply have been me looking for an excuse to play around with computers, but I, I did a <laughs> lot of reading, which um, for someone who did not have a background in philosophy or politics was fairly eyeball melting at the time.
0: Okay, we can go in two directions. I think we can we could splinter into politics straight away, but I have a feeling we maybe haven't done enough justice to your actual current practice. And let's talk about how you entered the blockchain space and maybe rather than try to yes. figure out what the blockchain is too quickly, because, I mean, your practice is an exploration of both the possibilities and the meanings and quite often the very definitions of crypto art and its many associated arenas. Yes. I think it would be a good idea just to show off your trophy cabinet to, to tell our listeners about <laughs> all these things that you either invented or nearly invented or simply completely missed out on. I've heard you admit to this. Yes. Tell me how you nearly invented NFTs, how you nearly invented Bitcoin and how it all went kind of <laughs> right and wrong. And maybe some of your credits would be useful here yes. so we can see from like what perspective totally. politically and practically uh, a conversation proceeds.
1: Yes. I Very, very fortunately, I, I am not Satoshi. I, I did not invent or almost oh. invent Bitcoin. Um, I think I first heard of it via the peer-to-peer foundation. Mm-hmm. And by 2011, I'd done a blog post saying, I will be the world's first Bitcoin artist. Send me a Bitcoin and I will draw you a Bitcoin and send it to you. And someone emailed me and said, how do we do this? And I didn't get back to them because I was worried that a Bitcoin wouldn't pay for the stamp. to to send the drawing to them by the time I'd finished.
0: I mean, a a valid concern. Yes, but
1: over over time, this is a nice example of, Mm. um, shall we say, my my lack of of visionary preparedness. (laughs) But by 2014, I'd moved from the UK to Canada. I was waiting for my permanent residency. and I was unable to work, so I was walking around Vancouver a lot and going to interesting events there. Some of the interesting events were cryptocurrency-oriented events. And I just recognized the vibe of excited young people in very dingy basements with projectors talking about how they were going to change the world and or get rich and or change the world while getting rich, and it was the vibe I remembered from the 90s sort of internet scene, not quite net art, but Mm -hmm. sort of web design and social change scene in London, um, in England in the 90s. I recognize this vibe, I recognize this look, Mm. Um, I understand some of the technology. What fascinates me here is culture. And it was the culture around cryptocurrency that really, really, really drew me in, notably Dogecoin over time, because that really, really started out as a satirical currency to the extent that that's possible.
2: Mm.
1: But that freed people up to play with it in a way that allowed them to come up with interesting cultural forms which fed back into the the sort of success and the structure of Dogecoin as a currency rather than a joke and the reason I I really dug into cryptocurrency into the blockchain and smart contracts as they came up was that I recognized the potential there for genuine minor social reform Mm -hmm. in all the claims of revolution and new worlds but i also recognized how it was a wonderful index a wonderful representation of post-financial crash social anxieties and ambitions so it's like i was i was already dealing with a portrait in a way or a landscape painting by looking at crypto as as a sort of embodied representation Mm -hmm. of you know both carried over and abandoned fixations from wider society and the more i dug into that the more it worked as, as a concept for me And I needed resources to be able to communicate this because very early on, I decided that I wanted to explain to the nice techno libertarian cryptocurrency people that art was probably an interesting thing for them to get involved with because it was an interesting use case for their technology and a way of playing with it without being responsible for, oh, I don't know, someone's food or housing or meds. And I was trying to explain to my nice Euro lefty art world friends i am a Euro lefty old friend that this technology and the ideological memeplex
2: mm.
1: behind it was something interesting to to dig into critically and arts productively and possibly who knows even financially because artists gotta eat and i realized that if i wanted to do um, a novel form um of novel ideas about a novel technology that was three strikes against the work to start with so as with the mm. the postscript viruses i needed something for this to work on and i very quickly went back to NetArt, which was another attempt to get there first artistically in a, a capitalist yeah. um, network of value to sort of almost pre-spoil it critically um Mm -hmm. not to actually spoil it but you know to sort of have a critical presence there and a creative presence there from day zero and conceptual arts which i'd actually steered clear of a lot previously surprisingly in in a direct way was irresistible because it was um it was an attempt at an exit from the actually existing art world of the 1960s in terms of the valuation yeah and circulation and display of art in response to a changing political and ideological and social climate, and it was very quickly recuperated by the mainstream art world, but not before it had, quotes dematerialized art in interesting ways and hit on many of the problems that I quickly recognised any use of a cryptocurrency or blockchain technology in art or art making would encounter. And so hmm. that led to making work that looks like very, 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 very late conceptualism. And it kind of is, but not visually. Visually, it's using the resources that it needs to to communicate. And those resources do happen to, to look like conceptualism, but that's not the initial driver.
2: Okay,
0: can I interrogate this? Because I think this is the point at which we have to start thinking about what aesthetic means. You described this
2: yes.
0: really beautiful moment where before the crypto world and art came together, as you know, that explosion came maybe around 2017, or frankly, during during lockdowns where everyone was suddenly bored, the art was finally noticed. <laughs> but there was this period where you suggest that visualizing, aestheticizing some aspects of these technologies actually can be used to reveal properties of the technologies themselves. So there's a point at which it is the artistic use of the blockchain that reveals what the blockchain is. That was an incredibly interesting moment. And frankly, all of the universe would want to be given that opportunity. But then you've also just instantly went to the point where you separated the visualization of the conceptual. And then you've also said, oh, it also happens to look like historical conceptualism. So I think we've got to the point where there's a promise, and that promise already in your own description of your own work is almost complicated to the point of being not particularly trustworthy, not necessarily in a description, but maybe in the way that we derive truth from the blockchain. So I'm steering us towards another big keyword. But, but, you know, aesthetics and truth and the blockchain. Like yes. I, is, there, yeah. is there enough time left in this interview to, to try to think about those things?
2: Is there,
1: is there enough time left in the universe? I mean, these, these are big ones ignoring blockchain. So I, I use aesthetics as something of a, of a boo word or a placeholder. It's kind of my Smurfy. If you remember the Smurfs, if, if you have something that you, you wish to say that you don't have a word for, but everyone else knows what you mean. You say smurfy. Um, I generally say aesthetics. I have a few different meanings of it, which I play very fast and loose with, the sort of advertising style meaning of these are the brand colours and shapes and font for something. Like, you you, you know what an Art Nouveau aesthetic is you may have our nouveau work that does not fit that aesthetic and you may have work in that aesthetic that is not our nouveau but you can recognize the stylistic ticks and innovations and materials of a particular representational or or consumption scheme for for experience, for sense data for the world that we would label as an aesthetic. There's the sort of art historical slash philosophical game of aesthetics which never really seems to get very far and every few years someone mm-hmm. goes, No, we've solved it. It it's just neurons or no, it's just the class struggle of base versus superstructure or no, it's just whatever <laughs> God wants us to, and, and none of these are convincing to anyone who hasn't written them. And then there's the sort of hardcore philosophical encounter of the subject with the phenomenon or or whatever. And these are all aesthetics. But when, when I say aesthetics, like Humpty Dumpty, I mean precisely what I mean. And I generally mean either what something looks like in a historically passable way or interesting arguments that we can have about that given the knowledge that we have of how that might have come about and why this is useful when dealing with Something which is fantastically abstract and, and often phrased in very strange language, like Bitcoin originally, and then cryptocurrency and the blockchain, is you can you can provide a map or a diagram, you can provide something that people can see, mm-hmm. and if they see something, they can say something. So it's a useful function for art and the reason i call it art rather than design is that immediate effectiveness of it isn't important it's not designed what i'm doing is not designed to help you spot a price change or um, a breakout in in popularity Mm -hmm. of a piece of art or anything it's trying to give people a way of having a feel for the whole technological system and what it is embedded in. And that is something that you can do in various different ways. People have sonified the blockchains. We have blockchain music. I've obviously written stories to try and get across what it would Mm -hmm. feel like in the unlikely world where we don't have Westphalian states, but we do have the internet and cryptocurrency and everyone acts like a, a good rational actor in a in a crypto anarchist world. But for me, the thing that I had to practice with was was image making, or or aesthetic deployment, or intervening at interesting choke points in the public consumption of the visual as the sort of tip of the yeah. um, social ideological iceberg that produces it. So the idea of aestheticizing the blockchain uh, was a useful way of providing people with a map of something I felt was technically and socially interesting. And blockchainizing aesthetics, uh, which is a horrible phrase, but I'll find a better one uh, next time, (laughs) was a way of problematizing some very comfortable assumptions about the nature of the actually existing art world
0: all right i wonder if we could try to think about the relationship between the actual existing art world that you just referred to and the art world as it might have become engaged in various blockchain technologies over the past decade and maybe this is a very quick summary in a, in a way that they'd have nothing to do with each other even though you are one of the one of the artists who have crossed over from the you know, the basement full of exciting people and the the projectors and also the auction <laughs> house, but it strikes yeah. me like those two things are almost unlinked.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. In 2014, I was writing, sort of. I sat down and I, I I thought, how you know, how would you make a complete parallel art world, but on the blockchain? I wrote lot lots of the stuff in the book comes from that period with me. Trying to write, you know, a catalogue raison Mm. system on on the blockchain and little art markets on the blockchain and stuff like that. And it was sort of both to demonstrate that it was possible to try and steer it in particular ways. I'm not personally a fan of the artist resale right, but I knew that people would want it. So that was coded into my Mm -hmm. little um, art market contract, which went on the Ethereum pre-release Testnet, and I, I was imagining a very different blockchain art world from the one that came to pass by the Beeple sale in 2021, which you know does mark the explosion
2: yeah.
1: of uh, interest, uh, which we can almost shorthand as negative interest in the blockchain. But I, I was sort of trying to work out how to make smart contracts, net art. That would get itself exhibited. Primavera de Filippi was working on Plantoid, which was, a, a again, a self exhibiting, self commissioning artwork on the blockchain. Nili um, Lera was working on Nilicoin, which was a very culture jamming style approach to, to brands via the blockchain. And of course, Kevin McCoy had made Quantum, which, for all the arguments that have just been resolved in court is both a reasonable example of what you could reasonably call the first nFT and also very different from the actual um nFT market that we we ended up with a few years later in interesting ways. so going from like this prefigurative mode to the oh wow, there's an you know there there is this thing called the rare art. Mm -hmm. space, which was was the early NFT space, and then Sotheby's and Christie's and um, various name brand art institutions getting interested um, rather than nice places like Furtherfield, who I've worked with for years, who did did, um, some very early shows of chain Mm -hmm. work in an art context. Seeing that change, it was... Very different from anything I hoped for. But the, the the strange thing is, the early projects were made by artists. So I, I, I was doing my usual. Uh, we should replace the Fiat art world with um, the blockchain. Sort of, you know, turn aside the canals, flood the museums. Act on the panel, and, and Kevin McCoy pointed out that I'm I'm from the legacy art world, and he's from the legacy art world, and not his words. And uh, we you know we had done early work on what became NFTs and even earlier projects like A Scribe had an art historian involved. So bizarrely this technology that's positioned as coming from outside the art world pretty much came from inside it. And that is interesting when looking at, you know, auction houses and mainstream art critics encountering this technology and taking that narrative at face value, because it means that they they are sort of both promoting and critiquing, not quite a, a simulation, but certainly one story, rather than mm. a, a, a taking the kind of fuller critical view that we're meant to be paying our historians, our critics for.
0: This is, I think, a good way to start really examining the, the brief history of the blockchain and its political potential including some of its disappointments so i mean you haven't you haven't really been using too many political buzzwords yet but it's it's hard to think about crypto without someone screaming <laughs> you know anarcho capitalism yes. or dirty libertarianism or occasionally fascism which Yes. I was quite relieved to see, to see you in the book also laugh at this kind of ease within which the critical world yes. you know, characterizes anything it doesn't understand as fascist. In
1: an era of actually rising fascism, the kind of academic. Career that you could replace with a function that returns fascism, whatever value you feed it. Just it's not adding value. Not to name names.
0: We are recording this for for mostly career academics. (laughs)
1: Good luck. Yes, I I envy you all. Please give me tenure. Anyway, so with Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin is well, it's it's an economic solution to a technical problem in an ideological program. The ideological program is the cypherpunk, anarcho-capitalist, techno-libertarian program, and we are now drowning in buzzwords. So in the 90s, there was a a group of activist um, technologists called the cypherpunks. We owe them a lot. They are the, the reason that, broadly speaking, they are the reason that we can securely talk to each other using strong encryption that the government doesn't have Mm -hmm. a backdoor into, you know, just to use against the bad guys and absolutely not to spy on their ex. So the cypherpunks believed strongly in in private property, which obviously puts them immediately off to the side from communist socialists and and anarcho-socialists who very, very much less down with the commodity form as any kind of thing mm-hmm. and so the privacy part of their program sort of led to you know encrypted communication which is great the privacy of your transactions money being speech remained an open problem because whilst i can send you a secret message that you can decode if that secret message is i'm sending you 10 pounds or i'm sending you a hundred dollars i can send the same message that Anyone else, and nobody would be one the wiser. And whilst that's great for lets, it's not great for a sort of scarcity based yeah. currency uh, of, of the kind that we use in day to day life. And so you can solve this by having an institution. You can have the state or a bank or, or just this one guy at your local space you really trust who approves and keeps track of all of the money, all of the economic exchanges in in your economy or your society. And this is fine until they don't like you. And my, my my friends with me on the left tend to have trouble understanding at this point because it's like, well, don't you want the government to stop sending money to terrorists and drug dealers and horrible people? It's like, well... If they would, that would be great. Um, you know how you're concerned about people needing to save up money to flee states in the US where their existence will shortly be illegal. Do you want the state censoring your ability to send them money to escape or for them to pay for their rent or food or, or Medication, and at that point, there is just a magical solution to be discovered, which absolutely does not include cryptocurrency, despite it being created to remove that kind of treacherous third-party intermediary who can commit acts of injustice at the moment of economic exchange. When I am saying, "Here you go, here is you know 100 pounds to pay your rent." you do not want someone swooping in and saying nope i'm mm-hmm. i'm stopping that because we've just passed the landlord protection act of 2024 so the, the the thing that bitcoin does is it makes it possible to remove at the moment of transaction that treacherous third party the the poorly named but in context understandable quotes trusted third parties of bitcoin and this is an anarchist move this removes an, a, a higher authority um this is a critical philosophical move you know it, it subtracts the state from from moments of authentic social exchange and it does that not with a particularly clever algorithm i mean that the the early code has bugs in it and if you show yeah. Bitcoin one to a cryptographer, they'll go, why did they use that? But it replaced a a technical problem with an economic incentive, which again is not sort of a popular move for non-market socialists or non-capitalist anarchists. So this area just opens up onto these fascinating issues within the political and social struggles that we currently face but it comes from a place which many people who would greatly benefit from at the very least having a seriously informed critique of it are just unwilling to look at and I'm not trying to recuperate the sort of extremist right libertarianism of some of the people who use and or produce this technology any more than i'm trying to sort of rehabilitate maoism or anything by pointing out that the left is a thing and it has good (laughs) ideas and good intentions just you know some of the people in it are a bit enthusiastic but i spent the two years after the people sale being yelled at on social media by people who knew that I was supporting fascism that I was a scammer that I was destroying the environment um, that I I was against social justice you know anything that people had ready to go mm. um, nfts as, as they became became this blank slate to project onto they became this literal, sociological scapegoat for people to place the tensions of the community onto and drive out into the wilderness and that was both critically interesting to to engage with and psychologically not some of my best days
0: (laughs) (laughs) can i suggest that maybe the Insertion of art into the blockchain is actually a place in which there's a reason that that became a conduit for that critique. Just very briefly, in the interest of network neutrality, which is a concept I've just invented for myself, I'm going to give a slightly different side of the culture war argument for (laughs) not having the state involved in, in one's banking transactions and I simply point to the Canadian tracker convoy. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in the point at which the artist becomes somehow involved in mediating to a much broader audience than previously. This happens again 2021 with Beeple and, and thereabouts. Suddenly the artist is inserted with an aesthetic project into a conversation about trust. We have terms like a zero trust society, which is a deeply loaded idea. The fact that we should somehow all strive to live in a culture in which our social relationships, whether they involve the state or not, are based on hermeneutics of mistrust. I think one of the many reasons that not only the left is so suspicious of this is that the blockchain really goes a very long way away from its ability to accurately record time, which is about the only thing it really technically does. And that in itself, I think, is shown to be significant. This is a you know, almost a game changer for a lot of philosophical thought. But to go from that to let's reorganize society, somehow both the left and quite a lot of the right, bizarrely, even the right that would somehow be okay with libertarian ideas, that they have become so suspicious of it. So, yeah, my, my knee-jerk reaction is to try to blame the artist for it somehow. So, yes, I'm blaming you, the artist.
1: That, that's that's what I'm here for. <laughs> so I, I mentioned trust as a concept earlier, and you, you mentioned time. And, yes, in, in Satoshi Nakamoto's original Bitcoin white paper, which does get waved to, like, little red books if you talk to Um, blockchain true believers, but despite that, it's a good and interesting read that uh, Mm -hmm. helps deflate a lot of claims around cryptocurrency. He doesn't say the word blockchain, he talks about a timestamp server. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this is the problem that Bitcoin and and the blockchain, as we now understand it, was created to to solve. How do you establish the order of events? In this case, um, the exchange of money or value. In the absence of a centralized authority figure, in the absence of a god state um some sort of lacanian father figure or the, the sort of toughest guy in your local group
0: that that's not, not going to work. you're never going to get rid of him, but never mind
1: that <laughs> it's like yeah how how you know how do you establish this in in the absence of a transcendental um, authority, and that phrasing is, to be fair, due, due to to Nick Land, um, but that it's still, you know, a very good phrasing of the problem and of what is so interesting about this particular solution. But the the fact of what trust means in that paper, that we end up very quickly with a confusion of terms of art. You want socially to trust the people around you. You want to be able to walk down the street without someone stabbing you or mugging you you don't want to be living with someone who is secretly an mi5 agent under an assumed identity you want to be able to trust your bank not to close your account for no reason and give all your money to someone you don't like these are examples of trustworthiness Mm -hmm. of the ability to trust of earned trust The kind of trust that Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever they were, is talking about in the Bitcoin White Paper is where you have no option but to trust someone who might betray you. In game theoretic terms, you've introduced another party into a two-player game who can simply declare the result null and void In in social trust terms. You want to ensure that um, no no one is lurking in dark alleys about to run out to stab you or mug you. And it's like wanting to remove the need to Mm -hmm. assume that things will be okay, to sort of trust that things will be okay. It's the difference between having to trust and being able to trust. And so when people talk about a trustless society, They absolutely don't mean a society of the popular image of the the East German state where half of the state is spying (laughs) on the other. and, And, you know, when you pick up the phone to tell your friend a joke, you laugh, they laugh. And the Stasi officer listening to you laughs. It's not that kind of corrosive mr robot style paranoia as as first ontology world it's a world where in fact you can trust people because no one else can betray you for them so yeah it's it's a it's a it's sort of people both promoting trustlessness and critiquing it do completely miss this they do sort of have a you should be this robust rugged individual who doesn't trust anyone It's like that's fine but if you try living like that you will very very quickly go a bit strange it's more you should not have to trust someone who can flip the table when you're having lunch with a with a friend it's it's that kind of trust but we really need a better word for it i would not want to live in the trustless society um that those who define it as not being able to trust anyone uh imagine because that'd be a very cold and lonely place it's a it's a dark forest in the six in sense of <laughs> sort of you know a cold war mutually assured destruction universe where If you find anyone else, you have to destroy them before they destroy you.
0: Uh, Funny enough, it's about the only work of science fiction that I read in the last decade or so. So I I get the sense of existential dread, which which there is (laughs) characterized as inevitable. So I completely also understand why the anxiety of the blockchain kind of induces (laughs) this vision already. And I won't keep you exercising, because it was very useful to hear the basic confusion. And I will stick by my... Charge that art is a very, very flawed way to try to dispel some of these misunderstandings. Like for art to induce trust involves both demagoguery and propaganda, and we've seen a lot of yeah. lot of examples in art history of that happening. But for to look for a positive, there is something that art, or at least the way that we understand the art market, to to do it is able to illustrate trust. And I think, Phil, we've also not been talking about your own practice, your own works enough. So I want to look at some of your blockchain works that deal with transactions, that deal with contracts, that deal with exchanges of money, let's say on money or, or, you know, ciphers for money, because that's kind of a proxy for for this idea of trust and exchange. And, And again, it helps us to think about the relationship between the power of aesthetics, in whichever meaning we we want to play with now, the power of aesthetics to illustrate and then the power of a transaction to actually run the point home.
1: Yes I mean nobody should trust artists we we make poets look like paragons of honest society sort of if an artist shows you something you know it's not real because it's art (laughs) it wasn't Art, it would just be something in the, the, the real world. So, artists are dealers in and of un- unreality. And that can, as you rightly point out, be propagandistic. Um, a lot of the sort of folk art of the cryptocurrency space early on was, you know, big paintings of of project logos or very, very uh, iconic in the religious sense paintings of project founders and, and so on and that that's absolutely a thing where bringing an alternate an alternative system of value up against an existing system of value helps is um, it gets people to reveal themselves Mm -hmm. so i love art i love the history of art i love i love people who work in the art world in, in the non-profit art world in art academia like this this is my life and and it's what i do regardless of what i am doing uh we all know where the money comes from we all know where it goes we all know the the injustices endemic within this system if nothing else because it is part of a wider system of of injustices but we, we we manage to be polite about that and if someone pops up and says hey I'm selling this thing a little electronic certificate of authenticity or whatever for five thousand dollars sixty thousand dollars seventy two million dollars that focuses the attention because it it's a figure it's it's a you know event against the ground of and not uncritiqued, but a rise, if that's a word, art world, where, where we're used to things selling for ridiculous prices. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: the transparency of the blockchain as it currently exists serves two purposes. It allows people to see how much this stuff sells for and get very angry about it. If it doesn't, then allow them to think about wider art world that it is at this point trying to to recreate, then that's a failure of critical reflexivity. I'm not saying that every new way of charging people for art that comes along can be defended on the basis that it reminds us that hey, people pay for art in the petrodollar art world as well. Blockchain for me is just a uniquely transparent and plastic way of engaging with this. Transactions on, on the blockchain originally were just you know, sending Bitcoin to each other, hence the name. They're this they are financial transactions. You can send a lot more data with them now. They're basically messages which may or may not have value attached. And and the semantic drift of terms like transaction and contracts within the blockchain space is interesting in itself. There's sort of not even family resemblance remaining in some of these terms now. One of my favourite, favourite, favourite movies of all time is Tarkovsky's Stalker. Mm -hmm. And um, spoilers for a 40-year-old Soviet movie, the, the, the bit at the end where they arrive at the room that grants your wishes and they're trying to decide whether to go in or not, and the writer says that what happened to the, the guy that stalkers talking about who went in there to beg to have his brother back was that all he got was a big pile of cash because that's yeah. you know what his baser instincts wanted and we we see that in in behavioral economics as revealed versus stated preference everyone says they want to save the environment everyone reveals their preference for going on a jet plane to an art fair or buying Mm. the toilet paper that doesn't dissolve in your hand and (laughs) you know that's very very easy to critique you know how much would you pay to have um, a lost childhood pet back or whatever well you know you cannot pay enough for that to to actually happen there there is a limit to money's ability to reveal preferences but within the space where you are either paying for something or, or not paying for something money does focus the mind in in purportedly good but at, at least useful ways so sort of saying yes i you know someone is paying for this it's a strong indicator that someone somewhere believes that there is some sort of value there and none Absolutely none of the critiques of nFT art of, of blockchain art that I've seen are unique to the medium mm-hmm. compared to the contemporary art world. And that sort of the way I have dug into this is precisely by being an untrustworthy artist and um, the artist as trickster figure. <laughs> Something like is art very early on? It takes the old nineteen sixties hey, what's art? art, is whatever an artist says it is you know the um is it Arthur danto the the um the, the nominational theory of the mm-hmm. institutional theory of art, art is whatever the art world says, which artists misunderstood to mean art is whatever artists say and and with that, I'm sort of delegating this so that mm. anyone. Can assert that some, this particular thing is art or not art with all of the power of the blockchain, uh, which at the time was an appreciable fraction of the Earth's computing resources, proving this assertion, compared to which an artist going to a gallery and saying that box is art is, you know, that's absolutely minor. This is an amazing way of, of proving that things are art. And sort of from the first word there, it's all, it's all lies. It's not anyone. I guess, 2014, it's the few people who have the wealth, mm-hmm. technological knowledge and privilege to access this system. With apologies to vulgar Marxism, money is not an ontology of, of reality. The fact you've paid to make this assertion is certainly a social signal, but it doesn't actually prove <laughs> that it, it is or it isn't. And it cascades from here. So rather you know, rather than saying yes this technology is trustworthy and yes I'm a trustworthy artist trust me and click this button there's, there's a moment of bathos to it where you, you know you're, you're looking at it and it's like great I can click the button and toggle it and is, mm. is that it and the answer, the answer is no that's that's not it it opens out on to to more and um, I would like you to think about this please uh, whichever direction you're coming from and like something later on in the same series um there's a work called art is which allows you to define what art is which is obviously an open historical problem um and everyone has their own perfect definition that nobody else really tends to agree with by the time you get to the fine print, and it, it's a list of I think ten definitions of of art using a little controlled vocabulary stored on the Ethereum blockchain that anyone can change if they pay an amount of of cryptocurrency to do so. So the first one you pay you know, a fraction of a penny. The last one you'd have to pay billions of dollars to change. And this, you know, this is the, the revealed preferences um, mm-hmm. part of behavioural behavioral economics again. And it's sort of, I, I enjoy making models that are almost precisely wrong. Um, as Douglas Adams described it in, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, something that is almost but not entirely unlike tea. If you're trying to make a cup of tea, (laughs) as Art and Language described it, disobedience, inobedience. It's the no, not like that of of the interview where someone says, Here's my definition of art and and you make a model of it that that is perfect for the description. You know, it it obeys the letter but absolutely fails to obey the spirit of what they meant. And it's a useful Mm. critical move in terms of it's actually harder to do than just saying, no, that's wrong. Uh, it's also more fun to do and more fun to look at than just saying, no, that's wrong. And it gives you something to then you know, engage with and react to in time. So the, these, very, very simple now, but at the time they were more complex than anything else on the pre-launch Ethereum blockchain. So it contained not monetary value, but sort of aesthetic properties or ontological claims, this was a way of of trying not to let this technology just slide comfortably and, and untroubledly and uncritically into its use by e-commerce solutions providers mm. or, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, that, that, that would be my response to um artists either as as um stalking horses for a trust that the technology hasn't earned or um you know art as um any kind of Potemkin village for the promise of, of, of the blockchain. It's sort of it's more can it do this? Well no, but the way it fails to it is is interesting. Because um, if you're not interested in the history of, of failures in, in in your field, then you're not really learning your field. You're just learning, you know, the, the propaganda the the history that's been written by by the winners.
0: Yeah, this is interesting. I came kind of in my my journey as a critic of the NFT in its very straightforward sense to recently to understand that the the temporary success of the whole movement was illustrative of an otherwise significant speculative deficit in practice and in critique. So you described with this Douglas Adams analogy this idea that we would be able to create things that are not like what we already know, but don't necessarily adhere to particularly particularly predefined or easily understandable categories. And I think that's an aspect of critique that is is both elusive and it's, it's really troubling. It's like in my my thinking, for instance, there was a moment of this speculative realism which later merged into object-oriented ontology, which is something that I think you, you've tried to deal with in, in your work and also in your writing. I wonder if you could speculate a little bit about places where these kind of critiques can take space if not on the blockchain, if that avenue has become foreclosed.
1: So if, if the avenue... Uh, it's become foreclosed, and and sort of I I only ever regarded this space as a temporary autonomous zone. It's like sort of if you are going to take on capital, capital wins. Um, that that's how it extends itself, and and if you can if you can create genuine value, then capital doesn't even say thank you very much as it slurps it up. But I I was amazed by how long the space of alterity that that. Um, cryptocurrency and the blockchain opened up remained open for and it's still it is still just possible to perform sort of minor acts of economic justice or of speculative economics using this technology without it going back to a 16 z as soon as you you say it Mm. but we, we are absolutely not in the Anarcho capitalist post revolutionary paradise that I describe in, in Bad Shine. Um, we are in what's looking like another financial crisis, and um, the state is blaming crypto for this um, whilst pushing regulations which would mm. bake in the few really big non crypto. Crypto institutions as, as the, the winners of the entire game, which is a bizarre it's a bizarre time to be in. But anyway, coming back to where else this could take place, the sort of the gaps in surveillance capitalism in, in techno capital are always cultural spaces. They are always spaces of production. You know, if you're on a Discord, yes, this is a you know it's a commercial operation that you are in some way supporting, but the culture that is generated in these sort of hit, hit concealed spaces that um, are part of someone's um, unicorn business plan continue to both trivially and profoundly redistribute wealth, uh, trivially in terms of Yeah, it would cost some tens of dollars a month to set up your own server to have conversations on profoundly Mm. in the sense that these conversations Mm. people are having, these are plans that people are making that are out of the public eye in a meaningful way. And the organization, as it were, and the avoiding cultural closure is taking place in um, very, very cypherpunk, recognisable contexts of encrypted messaging between, you know, in, at least initially, pseudonymous participants, and the, the joke that a DAO, a decentralised autonomous organisation, which is a blockchain programme that has some model of, of rules that you can use to vote and Manage its treasury with the joke that a DAO is is a Discord group with a cryptocurrency wallet attached starts to show that much as uh, we're not all running Richard Stallman's GNU system, we're all running mm. Linux. The tools that the Free Software Foundation created in the eighties and early nineties could be used to make something. That has much of the effect, if not the spirit, that they wished to achieve, just in a way that does horrify the people who made it. So, like, I I can easily see groups using encrypted messaging technology, these kinds of, you know, the ability to prove that something has happened um, economically cryptographically and sort of various other affordances, which um, for all the complaints from cryptographers that uh, cryptocurrency isn't crypto, please give us back the word crypto. The work that blockchain researchers have done has pushed entire areas of cryptography very far ahead. And this sort of combination of more advanced cryptography, ongoing um, temporary autonomous zones of of social flourishing and organisation and production, and the ability to somehow not have that immediately siphoned off by capital, even if it's only getting paid rather than not getting paid for what you do, which is a problem under capitalism that we cannot wish away um, whatever our preferred economic system would would be i think that even if cryptocurrency and or smart contracts and or blockchains have nothing to offer to the future of any kind of social alterity or economic organizing the the, the technology the knowledge and the problematics that it has produced. Are they ready to be seized on by whatever the next generation of people who go hang on i i don't I don't like the way things are. I would like things to be different please and as as the state gets more and more intrusive and as actually existent fascism becomes more and more of a problem, people are going to have you know more of these actual material tasks that that um not not being wiped out will require them to perform and there there may be something here.
0: May I ask you a deeply personal question?
1: You may, yes.
0: So I definitely am of the opinion that the actually existing fascism is a bogeyman. I think I might have an inkling to to what you're referring to. And I'm trying to figure out whether in the both ideological and technological Space. There isn't that you've just described so eloquently, and you practiced for for decades. Whether there isn't a correspondence to your individual experience. So the personal bit is that you came out as trans not long ago, as far as I understand. Outed. Sorry. Um, I mean that in and of <laughs> itself isn't that exciting to really comment. But as a technological and political. Um, <laughs> Not a move. I'm not going to try to to suggest that you you've done anything for political reasons, <laughs> but I wonder if you see the correspondence between the crypto world, the blockchain possibilities of liberation that you just responded to, and and your and your your gender. Maybe this is a stupid question, in which case we can agree to cut it out. So, um,
1: no, 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 because it, it's a question that I I had to ask myself because it's. You know, everyone's experience of everything is different. More than one person I have spoken to um, has shared the experience that I had of looking back on my entire life and going, what did this mean in light of the new knowledge that I have now? um once I, I realized that I was actually trans and not just a good ally. So in terms of making art about secrets that not that are not available to the owner, um that's that's fairly obvious. I mean by the time I was doing certificate of inauthenticity, mm-hmm. um, the work was screaming at me. It was like, hey You should really look at what you're doing and think about it Um, but the part of my brain that um, section 28 installed and was committed to uh, making sure i didn't realize i was trans was like no it's fine ignore it there's there's other explanations for these phenomena that's fine i can see very clearly looking at it how on an artistic level the questions of encryption of privacy of identity and of their ironization because sort of the, the word i haven't mentioned yet is irony mm. and work i think is,
0: that's come across in well, some of your jokes in the last hour it,
1: it might it might have yes but sort of that 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 assembly of of ideological and practical materials sort of looking back and it, it's like oh yes of course yeah oh no and that desire to subtract a transcendent authority from social authenticity, which are, you know, those are all terms I could happily discuss for at least another podcast, but take it as I mean these in, in a gentle and everyday way. The desire to, is no small part of the history of trans liberation of which I am almost entirely a beneficiary rather than a producer. Um, Removing the figure of the god surgeon, who is the person who gets to decide whether you, you physically transition or not. Removing the psychiatrist who gets to say whether you are trans or not removing the, the, the state's ability to say, no, actually, you can't change the name that we have for you on file because we are the final authority on identity rather than merely
2: mm-hmm.
1: a bureaucracy that records reality. That that sort of subtraction of trusted third parties is... is a large part of, of trans liberation. It's obviously easy to massively over-egg this and immediately go wrong uh, if we try to push it in directions beyond something I'm saying off of the cuff on, on a podcast. But um, for me, you know, because of my interests, the, the resonances were there in terms of does this stuff still have liberatory? resources to offer Mm -hmm. um yes it does sort of as as far as i'm concerned if someone is attending an anti-trans rally dressed in black and doing a, a nazi salute someone is at least deploying the aesthetics of fascism against being trans and the genocidal or if we are being polite eliminationist laws that are being proposed in the states at the moment against trans people are you know that that's not social democracy let's put it that way now we can argue whether that is the primary objective of everyone involved with it or whether it is simply a stalking horse for the abolition of labor protections and collective bargaining mm. or some other cause which increasing the state's power to dictate what is right and wrong for an individual opens up, but on the way there <laughs> it has the material effect of fucking of up and killing um, trans people, so I'm you know, I, I can happily have an informed discussion about um, the vulgarities of, of dabbling in the term actually existing fascism um this long after the second world war, but it ain't just an aesthetic um for some of the material struggles that that trans people are currently involved with, um, certainly in the Anglosphere. But um yes, so technology can of course assemble you a list of all the people you want to gather onto a chain, onto a train. It can also allow those people to communicate without you being able to find out what their plans are um, and it can allow them to find each other and organize and beyond cryptocurrency although it is very useful for paying for healthcare that you are denied because of the trusted third party of the state saying okay okay no, i think
0: i think we've rammed this point home now that.
1: You... So... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's I, the, the thing that i'm interested in is is homebrew hormone creation like creation from first um from first from first principles yes yeah. sorry i can i can ram yeah. home a different point and no, i apologize no, no, listen, for going listen, off listen, on listen. one i've I'm had a just, very, I'm, I'm, I've, had yeah, a very yeah. I've had a very hard week on this front so i, I apologize
0: well i'm sorry i don't i don't wish <laughs> to dwell on on the private bit, and i also want to come across as more of a turf than i yes. actually am because that's not going to help our conversation
1: oh no goodness no, no. i think
0: we've done quite quite a lot here because you've if somehow even in a disagreement have managed to somehow highlight the technological (laughs) promises are both potent and flawed and that actually we can drive up all the possible outcomes from, from any of this that actually this technological and ideological conversation because frankly we have not really moved away from Materialist Marxism, all that much, and most of what we've done, no. but it can produce so many conflicting outcomes that I think I would like to encourage any of our academic listeners to go back to the period of the last ten years and kind of revisit this pseudo-fascism of crypto spaces because it actually has produced interesting and non-trivial results. Some of which have been aesthetics, some of which have been called artworks, but a lot of which have had you know financial outcomes like you know markets have crashed because of some of the things that you've been engaged with so um
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll have to cash out my bitcoin and start communicating with people cryptographically to flee mm. the states
0: well at least half of that doesn't sound so terrible good luck and thank you for the conversation you
1: thank you <laughs>
0: Proof of Work, Blockchain Provocations 2011-2021 by Rhea Myers, is published by Urbanomic. I'm Pierre de L'Incest, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thanks for listening. Join us next time.